Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Betting People. Um, I'm delighted to bring to you a legend of political betting, formerly of Labrooks Alentane, now here at Smarkets, where he's kindly invited us. Thank you very much for joining us, Matthew Shadow. Thank you so much, William. Very nice to be on your series. <laughs> uh, it's long overdue, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, anyway, going to get into the really good stuff first, namely the huge amount of really big political events we've had over the last decade. I'm going to go right to 2016, uh, where we had, of course, the famous double act of Brexit and the referendum here, and Trump winning the 2016 presidential election. Massive um, political betting events. Um, how did they go for you and Labrys at the time? Uh, not too bad, actually, Com- uh, certainly compared to um, a lot of the British betting industry, which had a very bad time with both of those events and lost a lot of money. Good news for pundits, obviously. Um, EU friend was fine. We made some money on that, partly as a result of the uh, betting that went on after the polls had actually closed. Um, Trump, yeah, we, we escaped without losing too much money on that. We were actually quite pleased with the way that worked out uh, compared to what could have happened. Um, but, you know, it was a, it was a, you're right, it was a really, really big year for the political betting industry because it just encouraged a whole new set of people to become aware that we were offering markets and this sort of stuff and get involved with them and open accounts with bookmakers. So um, the, the overall impact was really good. Of the whole decade, um, do you remember any really big um, market swings? I'm thinking of stuff like the access Hollywood tape um, that had a really big effect on the narrative of the US election at the time. And I was wondering, did the market follow that? Um, and are there other occasions where it has done? Or generally speaking, are there differences between sort of public opinion and the narrative and what people mean to part their money with? Yeah, I mean, the particular incident you mentioned with that Trump tape, um, I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like Trump might have been 7 to 2 before that was released and went out to like 9 to 2 uh, in a very short space of time, which is a pretty big move in a big liquid market like that. But then there were lots of other instances during that particular election where the market suddenly swung. I don't know if you remember when Clinton tripped over on her way into a car or something or seemed to collapse on some steps somewhere. All of a sudden she wasn't uh, physically fit enough to be president. Everyone has forgotten about that by election day, of course. Um, and in the main, those kind of campaign events, um, my estimation is the market generally overreacts to those. And so as a punter or a bookmaker, you want to be sort of zigging when everyone else is zagging in that situation. Uh, and a big exception would be the the FBI investigation, opening their reopening their investigation into Clinton's emails at, at ten week, ten days or so before the election. Now that probably, arguably, changed the result, and the market did react to that. In that instance, correctly, but I'd still say most of the time you're best off trying to ignore the campaign noise and switch off the news and just follow the polls. Have there ever been any candidates that have been just massively overrated by the market? in direct contradiction with the polls for any of those reasons? I mean, you could argue Trump in 2020 was, although, you know, the actual result ended up being a lot closer than the polls suggested. I mean, the, the biggest example was Marine Le Pen in the 2017 French presidential election because you know, she was routinely 20, 25 points behind in the polls for the final round where she was up against Macron. Uh, but if you looked at the betting market, she would have thought she was like four or five points behind. She, mm-hmm. she was four, I think we were laying her at four or five to one on the day of that election. Um, that was kind of a reaction to what happened in 2016, because a lot of people who'd made money on backing Brexit and Trump 
were probably playing that money up on the pen, expecting you know the same sort of results happen again. In other words, that the populist right wing candidate would um, overperform the polls, but there was you know this would have been the biggest polling miss in history. So um, I'm kind of expecting her to be overrated again for the next uh, election, but we'll see. Speaking of the polls and their political markets, these are two things that are often written about and often talk about. Um, you know, other polls match in betting markets. Obviously, like last year in the US, they very much, I'd argue, were not, um, at least in probability terms. Um, but on other occasions, they have. Um, do you think that, especially post 2016, but I'm looking at the whole decade because we had to cause the NUF, yeah. um, do you genuinely think that? polls and political markets, at least at the time the off, have matched each other or have they begun to diverge a bit? Yeah, I mean, again, the best example is the US, because in 2016, if you drawn a graph, um, if you looked at something like 538, which produces probabilistic you know, forecasts of the outcome, and then you looked at the odds, which are essentially you know, probabilities, and you match them in a graph, they pretty much just followed each other exactly. They were really, really, very close. In fact, the in that year, the, the markets probably um, underestimated Trump a little bit. But if you, got, you switch to 2020 and you draw the same graph, there's a huge line, uh, gap between those two lines where the betting markets, for whatever reasons, in some ways some good reasons, um, had decided to massively discount how um, accurate the polls were likely to be. Um, and it's, again, in some senses they were correct because the polls you know, did um, underrate Trump's popularity by quite a bit. Um, do you find, or did you find, that there was sort of a betting backlash um, in the sense that people were trying to go very much against uh, what was seen as the conventional favourites after 2016? Because um, you said Le Pen in 2017 um, ended up being very much an underlay. Um, did that trend continue for other European elections? Yeah, I mean, you can look at lots of elections that happened in that time period. The ones that spring to mind were Sweden, Holland, uh, Poland, Norway, where the markets just expected the sort of radical, the populist right candidates or parties to do better than the polling would suggest. Well, I'm thinking they did about as well as the polls would suggest. In fact, Le Pen did worse than the polls were going to suggest, suggest in 2017. Um, but that sentiment, I think, was a big part of where we were in 2020 with the, uh, the betting markets giving Trump a much bigger chance than the polls would have suggested. Um, yeah, and there's, there's definitely a strain of thought out there which is now you can just ignore polls, ignore the experts, ignore the betting markets. Um, if you happen to know, if you're in a bubble of people who think the same way as you do, then it's normal human sort of biases kick in and you naturally think that these things are more likely to happen than uh, other evidence might suggest. Um, going to another thing, but referendums have been, you know, a big feature of that period and now are much more politically bet on. Um, how big a betting event was the first independence referendum? And I say that because Indiegraph 2 is a big campaign and if you're watching it, um, it might well be in the news. Um, but what was the first one like? Yeah, I mean, the 2014 independence referendum was a sort of big milestone for me personally, career-wise, because i just only just taking over full-time as a politics uh, trader at Labrooks. Previously I'd just done it as a sort of part-time hobby um, with my, my other jobs at Labrooks. Um, so to have an enormous event like that which created so much interest, a really big sort of two-way market as well, um, and a positive result as it turns out for us, um, 
yeah, it was spectacular. That really was the sort of start of that sort of seven or eight years of uh, really big betting elections. Um, how did you get into um, doing what you did? Because you said it was a part-time hobby. Um, has politics always been a passion of yours, I presume? Yeah, I did, I did my undergraduate degree in political science, uh, so I had an interest in that um, from quite early on. Although I never really bet on it until I actually got involved professionally with it. Um, I really got into I ended up working for Labrooks because I was a sort of horse racing obsessive. Um, I'd worked in bake shops during the summers when I was a student um, and had some other jobs which involved hanging around with lots of people who were really interested in racing. Um, so that's how I ended up working for Labrooks, and then the person who'd previously done political odds left, and I put my hand up and thought this would be a fun way of spending a couple of hours a week um, not really realising that it would become such a big product and uh, what was your first political bet? <laughs> I remember well, the first winning one I can remember uh, was backing Ian Duncan Smith to be Tory leader uh, that would have been about 2007 I guess I seem to remember it was about 10 or 12 to 1 uh, but as I said, I didn't, I didn't really follow it all that closely until sort of, um, yeah, I think the 2008 US election was the first one I traded for Labrooks. Uh, and I look back at how little I knew then, I'm kind of amazed that we managed to avoid losing fortune on it. Um, yeah, but it was from that point on that I really took it seriously. Um, just to, and it's part of it, what's been your best political betting memory? Um, well, I mean, I do remember enjoying the 2012 US election because that just seemed to go exactly perfectly to plan, as opposed to like 2020, which, although that worked out well in the end, was um, several hours and a couple of days of torture waiting for the result to be confirmed. Um, yeah, but I enjoyed that one. We've had some really good by-elections recently. I mean, the ones in um, uh, Peterborough a couple of years ago, I don't remember that when the Reform Party got beat. Uh, that was pretty fun and just actually we spent a lot of time during my years at Labrooks actually going out and doing sort of PR physically going to elections standing in market squares with your blackboard pricing up the odds and meeting politicians that came by that was a really fun part of the job well thank you very much for opening this Betting People episode with some lovely memories of the past and I look forward to calling the other bits with you thank you very much Matthew Shaddock thanks William to this episode of Blessing People with Matthew Shabbat of Smarkets. Um, we're going to look at some industry issues um, now and basically how the political betting industry has grown. Um, I was talking in the first episode about how we've seen an explosion in recent decades and I wanted to ask over the course of your career you know, just how much has political betting grown? Uh, yeah, I can remember when I first sort of took on this job, it was really just a part-time hobby to go along with my actual job at Labrooks at the time, which was more sort of horse racing focused. Um, and um, there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm for very many people in the rest of the trading department, as I remember. Although my boss at the time was Patrick Jay, who's actually the um, grandson of uh, Jim Callahan, uh, And he was super supportive, as were, you know, most of the other trading directors I worked under. Um, and we had a very good group of um, PR colleagues who were very much behind it. Um, 
So yeah, it grew from something really just tiny. It was mostly a PR-led exercise, trying mm. to get you know, the brand's name in the papers. Uh, no expectation you could possibly win any money doing it. Um, so the fact that we turned it into a sort of legitimate product, where we by the end of it we're expecting to at least to break even, if if not better, on the, the, the major uh, events. Um, and you know the swings. You know if Trump had won last year, had Trump beaten Biden, I mean there would have been a sort of fifteen million, million pound swing in terms of profit for loss for for Entain. Um, so that's a pretty big deal. It's very rare that even big companies like Entain will have that much of a swing on the outcome of one thing. Never mind one election. Mm. You know even one horse race or soccer match or whatever. You never get those. We very very rarely would get those sorts of swings. Of course you can lose. A lot of money if all the favourites come in one Saturday. Um, yeah, so it became quite a big deal, and I think uh, in terms of what we did for the brand there, um, and the help we gave to our sort of comms colleagues, I think it was a really, really good exercise. Um, now, you've moved to Smarkist, which is an exchange based platform, um, and you know, obviously they're not the only exchange in town, but that part of the industry is great too. Um, and I was just wondering, in your opinion, you know, how many exchanges do you think the market would support you have some markets Betfair and Betdac and there are other sort of peer-to-peer platforms too yeah um, I wouldn't think very many more I mean even our company I mean, the exchange is what the main products we've been running for the, for, for the last few years here but we do not have Sportsbook now as well SBK and that's where we're imagining most of the growth might come from in the future because the nature of exchanges, as the market has found out, is that they're a sort of, um, I wouldn't necessarily say niche, but they certainly put off a lot of casual bettors because there's some terminology and a different interface to get your head around as opposed to the fixed odds probably most people are familiar with. So, um, I mean, I think if there's going to be any growth in this sort of exchange area, it's going to be in a different space altogether. It's going to be crypto stuff where you can... In theory, get get around sort of national regulations by setting up your blockchain-based um, prediction market somewhere, and there's some of those are already you know, turning up quite a bit of money. Uh, but in terms of your, you know, the regulated business like the one the markets is in, um, I can't imagine there's going to be too many more. Um, now moving to a different tack here, but for anybody who might be um, interested in either getting into the political betting industry as niche as it might sound, or just setting their own political odds. Um, do you have any tips for somebody looking to do that? I can think of a couple of things. I mean, I think one really useful thing is actually to be able to code um, or uh, you know, at least build models, because that's an area of expertise which everybody wants in the whole of um, the betting industry and obviously lots of other industries too, so it's a good thing to fall back on. But if you could turn up and start building, I don't know, a model to price up constituencies at UK general election that would be marvellous lots of people would like to employ you if you could do that um, and I think the other thing is just to try and write something if, if you want to uh, start up a blog or something and just start writing stuff about your predictions keep a, make, make your tip uh, that people could uh, compare reality to in the future um, they'd be two things I'd start to do if I, if I wanted to get into this sort of thing An industry wide issue uh, which just isn't just in political betting, is winning punters, winning accounts being limited or banned. Yes. Um, do you think that there's a better alternative for the industry? I ask you as a man who has been on the other side of it. And do you have that, or did you ever come across that um, in your time of maintaining political betting? 
Um, the first thing I'm going to say here is that this is, doesn't really apply to smart markets very much. We do have, um, I mean, if you, if you hit a couple of uh, milestones on the exchange about how much you win or how many trades you make in a particular time, you will end up getting paying more commission, which you might argue is the same thing. But we don't have a team of people who are um, scrutinising every account to try and uh, as it will weed out the ones we think are going to be unprofitable on, on the sort of sports book, unless you happen to hit one of these uh, milestones, which only a very small mm. selection of customers would do. Um, thinking back to my time at Intain, for instance, what I would say is that the people who are um, in charge of that sort of client profiling part of the business um, are mostly pretty clever people who've got a lot of experience of the betting industry, really understand what they're doing. They're not just restricting people because they happen to have backed a couple of winners or even that they happen to be ahead even after quite a long period of time that doesn't mean you necessarily get restricted these people who know what they're doing they've got very good analytical tools I can guarantee you they are, they are very very good at identifying accounts which are likely to be unprofitable for their organisation um, now once you've done that the question is well uh, why wouldn't you as a operator seek to minimise the losses you're going to take against these accounts you've identified. Um, of course, the people on the other side, the, the customers who are, in some cases, um, pursuing some kind of arbing strategy or they've got some bots which can find inefficiencies in people's prices or they're just backing bad each-way races in Ireland or whatever it is. Um, I don't think they're doing anything wrong or unethical in trying to exploit those um, edges they've found. But they're acting perfectly rationally. Of course, the operators are uh, acting perfectly rationally in saying, we don't particularly want to take this custom. They certainly don't have any legal obligation to do that. Um, and I don't particularly think they've got any um, ethical obligation either. Now, it's, it's markets, of course, if you're running an exchange um, and a sports book where we're trying to offer you know, a very low-margin product, uh, low-commission product to as many people as possible, doing that and also... Um, paying out potentially millions of pounds to a small number of very sharp accounts or um, that's not easy in order to try and maintain that exchange ecosystem as other exchanges have done you end up you know, asking you know, the big winners to pay more commission uh, some of them will, some of them will simply stop because it doesn't become it's not profitable anymore for them to do so um, so no matter how much we'd like it just to be some big free market where supply and demand could just look after itself the reality of these sort of platforms is that's actually pretty difficult to do that and still you know, make a profit essentially and have you found that in political or in any of those terms you know, you've had situations where Quite a few people were, say, limited from that group, saw that from, couldn't get what they wanted on elections, etc. Um, I think it would be very, very rare for people to get restricted just because of activity they've, they've um, conducted on political markets. I'm not saying that's never happened, I'm sure it has. It doesn't happen all that often. Um, if, if they did, it would probably be because they were simply, or at least they were mainly, um, just arbing our prices against some other platform somewhere continually and doing nothing else, in which case that might happen. Um, from the market's point of view, uh, one of the reasons we host as many political markets and current affairs markets as we do is actually a desire to produce something useful on our platform other than just a um, vehicle for people to have a bet on the football or whatever because we want our, we see our sort of future as being somewhere where 
people visit our site not necessarily a place of prayer, but if they actually want to know the real probability, or at least the best estimate of the probability of something happening in the future, like, I don't know, some piece of government legislation passing, or who's going to be the next Prime Minister, or whatever it is, they'll come to our site, and we'll have a very accurate set of probabilities in terms of our odds. Um, and we can't really achieve that unless we have clever, clued-up, informed people betting on the on these products and putting the prices as near to the correct probabilities as possible, if there are even think about real probabilities in these kind of situations. Um, so we are very reluctant to um, stop accounts like that, even if we think they're going to win money in the long term. If they're helping us discover the real price, then we're prepared to pay a price for that. And actually, you know, the profitability or otherwise of these markets is actually quite a long way down our list of priorities for these things. Um, uh, we're, yeah, we're more about, as I say, providing something that could actually have some social utility. Um, can political betting um, follow on from that? Do you think you can keep growing at this pace? Do you think that uh, the next decade will do very well to match the last? Um, but going forward, do you think you can continue to expand? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's, a big, there's certainly a big gap in the market for not just election betting, but on all sorts of other events and current affairs that's happening, which at the moment um, the betting industry doesn't do very well. Partly that's because um, it's probably not going to be very profitable for the operator. Mm. Um, but also partly it's hard to find the expertise. It takes quite a lot of work to create these markets, to come up with rules that are relatively watertight and don't land you up with some ambiguous settlement situation, which will happen no matter how hard you try with these things. And so it seems like a big load of hassle for most operators for what would be a fairly niche part of their business. The good thing about smart markets is um, that because the, the original idea of this company from Jason who founded it um, was that politics and current affairs would be a big, big part of it and he's still really, really uh, determined to make that happen. So um, we've got a lot of leeway to try and expand it as much as we possibly can. And uh, last but not least, um just going on a bit of a tangent, but at the moment we're currently in the midst of a gambling arena, um, and I'd be sort of remiss to ask somebody who's been in the heart of the industry whether you think uh, reforms needed and what sort of reforms those would be. Um, I don't actually have a very strong opinion of that. I mean, I think just as a as a consumer myself, as somebody who bets, um, you know, let's take one idea that's been floated of having sort of monthly limit of how much you can deposit to a um, particular bookmaker or whatever it is um, you know, from the point of view someone that's likes to bet on elections that's going to be very inconvenient because your overall spend may actually be very small over a long period of time but it might be very concentrated in one month before a UK general election or something um, so I'm rather hoping that doesn't happen just from a personal point of view I don't know what Smarkit's um, submission has been to the gambling commission as I, I couldn't comment on what the company thinks um, I think it makes perfect sense to try and update the legislation to reflect that you know, more people are betting online and so on. Um, I mean, the other thing is that Smarkets doesn't operate casino products or virtual products, um, which I suspect um, may have more focus than sort of sports betting. I don't know. Um, but no, I don't, I don't know which way it's going to go. I know some people had speculated with the previous... Minister in charge, it was likely to be slightly less bad for the betting industry than had been suspected. We've now got a new minister in charge of this thing, so I've got no idea what she thinks about it. 
thank you very much for your time in this part of Better People, Matthew Shadow. Thanks. Welcome back to Betting People with Matthew Shadow of Smarkets. Now, Matthew, just want to dig a bit into process. Um, now, of course, there is a bit of a different tone here because now you work for Smarkets, although there is a sports book um, as we've established um, as part of Smarkets. But um, a couple of questions I got from another than Ben Keith really interested me. The thought I'd um, ask you that because um, this is all about basically odds making. Um, now, when you make a book and you've got a good position already, um, which can, and is very much the case, feels like general elections and also presidential elections. Um, is the market new to you every day, or do you trade according to that position? And he asked that, and I sort of agree, because you trade markets and the prices can move quite, with quite a lot of volatility, um, as I'm sure you'll be aware of, either in running or um, throughout the course of the campaign. Well, the logical and most efficient thing to do as a bookmaker or a punter is just to forget about what's happened already, forget about the bets that have been struck or your position that you've already been left with, whether it be good or bad, and just try and trade the prices as accurately as you can do, or at least the ones that are most efficient to offer to the markets. Um, so, yeah, you should try hard to forget about the liabilities. I think that some of the best betting operations actually stop some of their traders even looking at the liabilities while they're trading things um, because there is a very natural instinct to try and balance things up if either way if you're doing badly uh, to try and get some money in the other way but in the long run that's going to cost you money you're much better off just forgetting about that and just trying to I mean there'll be times when you have very big liabilities or something like last year's US election where you've agreed some you know, risk management plan with your superiors where you know you're not really allowed to lose more than X million pounds, and so therefore that has to be at the back of your mind when you're laying or declining bets. Um, but mostly, as a yeah, whichever side of the bet you're on, you're best off forgetting about your previous liabilities. For the last, um, for the Trump um, Biden election, um, was there a point pre um, election day where you sort of had that red light that you were going to pass? Um, no, that was more of a sort of constant discussion that was going on in the, with the trading management. And I must say that the, um, Tom Zima, who's the trading director at Entain now, um, was very good. And those guys went a lot further than I thought they were going to go uh, because, uh, well, at least partly because I think I'd convinced them that this was the greatest political lay of all time, trying to take on Trump. Um, so the fact that it was a lot closer than I anticipated didn't help. <laughs> but um, no, they, they gave me a lot of support. Um, and, you know, when you did a company like Insane, of course, you know, losing several million pounds election is, is painful, uh, but it's not going to affect the share price, right? There's um, another 364 days of the year where they can um, be a profitable company. So yeah, they, they were pretty good, and so I didn't ever hit that line, although that does, that does happen sometimes. Politics and special betting is a modern area, and perhaps you know maybe the only area where there is no international market, or and prices are made. Well, there is an international market, but where generally speaking, um, you know, prices are made up of knowledge and feel, and sometimes knowing your customer base, um, particularly or before you know you start to get your really detailed polling. Uh, in some cases, of course, it varies for election, uh, not. 
Um, as a bookmaker, apart from those who have inside knowledge of a particular event, what skill do you see in a punter that enables them to win, basically, um, betting on politics on time? Well, one thing you've got to do is try and clear away any kind of wishful thinking bias that you might have in your... I mean, it's just natu- Again, this is a kind of natural thing that all of us have. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a tendency to believe that what we want to happen is more likely to happen than it actually <laughs> is. So you can see this in polls. When you ask... Uh, when you ask before the EU referendum, you'd ask people, what do you think the result of this referendum is going to be? Well, guess what? Remain voters were much more likely to say Remain's going to win and Leave voters are much more likely to say Leave's going to win. Um, and of course, that kind of bias, once you're aware of it as a bookmaker or a punter, you know that may actually end up being reflected in the market. Um, if one side, for instance, is more likely to place a bet. I mean, if you think, think about the Scottish referendum, that's quite a good example, mm. where the um, independent side were much more passionate, much more visible, seemed to me. Um, but also, in some ways, they were, they were they more overlapped with the sort of betting community. They were more male. People who wanted to leave the UK were, were um, leave the union were more male. I think one of the biggest votes for independence in that referendum was in Dundee. That may have even been the number one place where um, the yes vote got the highest totals. Dundee also happens to be, I've been told, one of the biggest betting cities in the UK. So if there's an overlap between the betting, the kind of people who like to place a bet and the kind of people who feel one particular way about an election, well, of course, that might distort the market a bit. It's not a perfect market where everybody's just rationally acting. Um, There's a lot of bias in there. And so trying to be able to spot that is probably the most important thing. Do you think there are sides in some political betting markets um, that are particularly overbet or or underbet? Or actually, I might... Why do that? Do you think there are some candidates or political parties that have been particularly overbacked and underbacked? I'm thinking about um, Marine Le Pen being such a short price after um, Trump and Brexit. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder if there are any other examples. Yeah, I think we we kind of touched on that before, didn't we? I mean, there was a, a there seemed to be a run of European elections where people were always backing the most populist right wing candidate or party to win. So that seemed like an easy way of um, making some money by trying to oppose that. I mean, I think there is some evidence that in general, in UK politics, that perhaps we have tended to overrate the Conservatives. You look at by-elections we've had recently. I think the only four by-elections since 2015 where the favourite hasn't won have all been the Tories losing seats they're expected to win. Well, no, one example, it was um, the uh, Farage's new party lost in Peterborough in the way they're expected oh, they yes, to win. Oh, yes, memories. Um, so maybe there's something in that. Maybe there, maybe there is a general tendency of the betting markets just to overrate the right. The, you know, the, the right. I don't know. Uh, that doesn't mean I would, you know, set up a system saying let's just bet Labour every time there's a by-election or anything else. Um, but that's sort of in the back of my mind when I'm sort of setting up prices. Um, when you're setting up a political market, um, what is your process, um, particularly for something that isn't an election, yeah. where there aren't necessarily you know good polling data? You know, there's polls every week going back decades for most elections now um, but outside as we know there's lots of side bets for political betting um, what's your process or what used to be a process I should say when setting up all those markets well there is still some of that process going on here because we're um, at least in conjunction with the trading arms markets um, 
we're sort of seeding markets here to start to start ball rolling in exchanges. So we have to come up to the price in the first place. Um, at the moment, it's something that just isn't amenable to any sort of statistical analysis. You've got lots of polls, that's fine. You can build models and try and work out what's happening from that. It's a process of informed guesswork. The more people you can get to contribute to that initial estimate, the better. So I have um, lucky enough to work with Patrick Flynn here, who's a very talented um, analyst. So there's at least two of us there who can both independently come up with some prices and average them if that's what we want to do. If you know anybody else who happens to have an opinion on these things or is well informed, then of course I might drop them a line. But the the process generally is, yeah, you, you come up with some kind of fairly guessy estimate for some of these things. Um, in the world of fixed odds betting, you probably have very low maximum stake limits for a few days. You hope that your informed customer base will push the price in the right direction. It doesn't cost you too much money, and then you can just let the market take over. Thank you very much for your time in this part of Burning People, Matthew Shadow. Thank you. Hello again and welcome to the last part of Betting People with Matthew Shaddock. Um, now this is a look to the future um, because there are lots of interesting political events to come. Um, we're recording this on the week of Lib Dem Conference going into the Labour Conference. You might be watching it by the time that started. Um, and then of course the Tories soon after and there appears to be lots of things down the road for political parties to keep an eye on. So are there any trends that political better should be looking out for over the next year and a half, let's say? Um, I mean, I can't think of any sort of definitive trends that are going to drive lots of different elections. I mean, we've had, we're probably going to have quite a good month potentially for the left in various elections because Democrats managed to hold on to the um, governorship in California uh, we had the left win in the Norwegian election the other day. We've had uh, Trudeau hanging on in Canada, most likely uh, pretty soon on this weekend as we're recording it. It looks like the Social Democrats are going to probably uh, emerge as the largest party in Germany. I would be very, very worried about drawing some lines to all of those and saying, hey, the, you know, the Social democ- Democracy is back and this is going to be great news for the Labour Party because I think each of those... Um, elections has very specific things going on and even when you look at, let's say, Trudeau uh, really just stood still compared to the election a couple of years ago yeah, maybe the Social Democrats in Germany will end up being government, being, you know, having the chance of being government but at really quite historically low levels of support based on the polls at the moment they, they'll probably win with 25 or 26% of the vote um, so it, rather than looking for trends I try and avoid trends most of the time and I think if you don't get too carried away by this month's set of elections Now looking forward, I'm uh, going to do a bit of predictions bingo here um, oh, yeah. we, we do keep thinking timeless but there's, I imagine, a fair amount of time between us speaking and these events taking place. So, give us your Democratic nominee, Republican nominee, and 2024 election winner in America, of course. Uh, well, from a betting point of view, it's indisputable to me that Biden is underrated as just his chances of being the nominee. I think he's 94 or something. Incredible price for the sitting president with three years to go. Um, on the other hand, do I want to be betting on something at that sort of price and having to wait for three years to get paid out? 
uh, not really. So, I mean, if I had to pick some kind of uh, long-term bet there, just in case everything really goes badly for Biden-Harris, uh, and neither of them end up being the nominee, uh, maybe Elizabeth Warren, 33 to 1 or something, I think she might be 25 to 1. Uh, she seems like a plausible runner. Uh, on the Republican side, I have actually had quite a few bets. Again, I mean, you could argue that Trump is still too big a price. If you compare his price here to some platforms uh, in cyberspace in the US, he's, he's much sure over there. So one couldn't, I could dissuade anyone from backing Trump to be the Republican nominee. Uh, the people I have actually backed um, include... Christy Noem, who I think is about 33 to 1 or so to be in the nominee there. I think she's governor of South Dakota. Uh, Tim Scott. Um, I have backed Ron DeSantis, but um, I'm not sure I would anymore because uh, the COVID situation in Florida hasn't gone very well, so I, I suspect that may impact his popularity. Um, but, yeah, he could be a big price winner there. Who's going to win overall? Well, yeah, I think Biden's too big at four to one or five to one or whatever price he is right now. Um, and you know, the names I've mentioned before, you know, are probably the best picks if you want to try and find an outsider. And who would be your likeliest winner at this stage out of all of them? Yeah, Biden's Biden's favour, I think. He's just about favourite because I think Kamala Harris was actually favourite for a while. Uh, her uh, her star seems to be waning a little bit. Um, yeah, Biden's the most likely winner. It's, um, if you just go through the process saying, well, okay, what are the chances of him still being president in three years' time when the nomination comes up, or three and a half years' time? You know, what are the chances of him therefore being the nominee, and what are the chances of him winning from there? It's very hard to make him as big as four or five to one to win the presidency, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I guess it depends how confident you are in his. Uh, you know how how he's dealing with any health issues he gets, but he seems fine to me, sir. Who wins the French presidential election? Well, I don't think it will be Marine Le Pen, so I'm quite keen on laying her. In fact, I have laid her to. I mean, as you know, but the way the French election works, you have a first round, which then narrows it down to two people who compete in the second round. So, you know, if you can lay Le Pen at, like, say, 1.5, to, to, which is, I think, roughly her price of making it to the second round, I would, because I think. Um, there are well, there's at least one other sort of far right candidate who always like to run and take some votes off her, assuming he does run. Um, and I think uh, I think it's quite possible the centre right candidates, whoever that is, because they haven't decided yet, um, could end up making the final two. And there's there's some good polling evidence that that, that person, I mean, I've backed Xavier Bertrand, so he seems to be the most likely candidate. Um, probably could be Macron. Whereas it seems there's very there's hardly any polls which ever show the pen beating Macron. So I think when it comes to you know first round of elections, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't very keen on Macron, who if they take the rational choice at that point may very well jump ship, leave Le Pen because she can't, she's unlikely to beat him in the final round and um, go with whoever the Republicans put up. Who do you think the next Prime Minister after Boris Johnson will be? Well, I, it's, I, I take a step back. Who would I think about who's the next Tory leader, assuming he steps down? Um, as, well, obviously, <laughs> he will disappear at some point. Um, I think I'd rather back... Of the, the market leaders, I would rather back Liz Truss, even now she's 7 or 8 to 1. Uh, maybe she's a bit bigger than I would Richie, Richie Sunak. Because I think right now, based on what we know about um, the preferences of Conservative voters... Uh, trust is probably more popular than Sunak. So if, if, if they were having a head-to-head tomorrow, I think I'd, I'd, I'd back Trust. 
so I'd rather back her eight to one than Sunak at three to one. Um, on the Labour side, oh, I'll tell you one other men, one other person I have backed on the Tory side is Quasi Quateng. Um who I think it's about sixty-six to one to be next Tory leader. Because uh, I think up till now he's been quite well received in his ministerial role. Obviously now he's going to be stuck in this big gas crisis situation potentially over the winter. Uh, but if he comes out of that unscathed, then um, he'll get shorter. Um, on the Labour side, um, I certainly wouldn't back um, Burnham, who's favourite, because me neither. Yeah, I mean, just logistically, he's got to become an MP first, mm. being Mayor of Manchester, so that timing's got to work out perfectly for him. He's got to find a seat, etc., etc. Um, so he's way too short, in my opinion. Um, I was talking to someone the other day who knows a lot about internal Labour politics, uh, and so I was suggesting, well, we need to find someone... It seems to me like there could be a big price winner of this market. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking, well, we probably should find someone who's probably a little bit to the left, at least, of Starmer. Um... You know, ideally a woman, because sooner or later Labour Party are going to elect a female leader, I assume. Um, although we kind of said that before the last election, and Starmer managed to win. Um, and someone who hasn't already been beaten in leadership elections before. And there aren't that many names spring to mind, but the, the name that suggested to me was Belle Ribeiro Addy. I don't even know much about her, but she's the MP for Streatham, and she's. Um, yeah, it's a long shot, but she's, I've seen worse 100 to 1 shots than her. And. I was going to say give us an MP to look out for, but uh, we've, we've heard from plenty there. Are there any names that you think um, in the future will be interesting as sort of long shots for for leadership that we aren't necessarily talking about now? Beryl, Rivera, Abby accepted. Yeah. Um, Bridget Phillipson, I think, is quite impressive. I backed her to be next Labour leader. I think I think there was a rumour that she was going to be made shadow, ca- cabinet, shadow chancellor at the last reshuffle that Starmer had. She didn't, uh, but I backed her and I hope that she would. Um, um, yeah, I, I think she's got a problem with the boundary review as well. I think her seat might be disappearing. Uh, so I'm not sure what happened to her. Well, fascinating insights, um, and I've absolutely loved having a chance to interview you. So thank you very much, and um, see you in the future, Matthew Shadow. Thank you, William. I really enjoyed it. news and odds check in with our expert william kajani at starsportsbet.co.uk begambleaware.org over 18 only